Are we ready? Hola, amigos. It's the Spanish edition. Hola, amigos. Bienvenidos a No Pots Given. Sabro, sabro, sabro. There it is. Hello, friends. We are glad you're here because we've got a ball lab to discuss. And right out of the gate, we're tackling the Callaway Chrome Soft. And we're going to chat what do golf ball fittings of the future look like? The answers coming up in episode number 56 of No Putts Given. Let's get it. All right, everybody. Let's talk to Tony, Harry, and Chris this week. How are you guys? Fantastic. Doing great. Same. Bitching. You're what, Harry? Bitching. He's bitching. (laughs) Okay. All of a sudden, Harry went to like 1984 Southern California vibe, so cool. I'm rad, however, a little gnarly. (laughs) (laughs) Word. By the way, does anyone like these colors? I would wear both of those. I love them. Blue and orange, baby. Broncos. Yeah. Yeah. The new Penfold ones are pretty, they are bringing back memories in my... Mine, which has been tucked away for a while because I've been over here for seven years now. So, um, Penfold is not on our topics list, so let's move along. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, last week I asked all of you to tell me something I don't know. And so, what's new this week? Anything new, different that you want to share? I did think of something you didn't know. Oh, please. Yeah, when I was like in fourth or fifth grade, I was really good at shooting free throws. I won the state championship as a free throw shooter. We had like free throw contest i was kind of a little bit hey. of a yeah kind of yeah it was pretty cool i think i still have the trophy in my basement somewhere that i was gonna uh put a new kind of face on and, and give to tony for getting ball lab out so that'd oh, be cool oh yeah and while i appreciate that gesture to be perfectly honest with you i would just throw it away because <laughs> after dealing with my mother's apartment i'm about decluttering everything I'm like i'm probably not gonna have this couch next week because i'm gonna decide it's unnecessary <laughs> <laughs> Chris, that, that gave me a good idea. I want to know if anyone else has any weird childhood talents, because I was the hula hoop champion of my elementary school. Ooh. What? I was, Why did yeah. I know this? I don't know. I it never, it never came up. I could hula hoop and like go about my day and not stop hula hooping. I don't still? know if I still have the talent. I was going to say. Uh, I could probably, if it's heavy enough, I guess I could. But back in the day, just hula hoop and then go and do whatever you want and I think I hula hooped for like 15 minutes or something like that, and all the other kids sucked and fell out, so I won. <laughs> Screw them little bastards. No talent hacks hula hooping. Wannabe hula. Bunch of wannabe hula hoopers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, what was your weird childhood talent, Harry? I was very, I was just awesome at everything. Hmm. He had a beard at age four. No, I, I have, yeah, that could be it. Uh, no, I mean, Every summer, I played about seven sports on, like, teams, which is kind of weird. There was badminton, cricket, football, rounders, which is a mini mini version of um, baseball, which is weird. You hit it with one hand. Tennis, golf, and hockey. That is sad. Field hockey? Yeah, field hockey. Metric hockey. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I was never in. I, I was never indoors. I was always outdoors, which my mum and dad loved because I didn't have to put up with me. 
Anyway, we'll jump into our first topic. So um, this was interesting because just this week, Titleist announced that they're going to be doing virtual ball fittings. And to explain it a little bit, Tony, from what I understand, it's you're kind of on something like a Skype or a FaceTime or a Zoom with a Titleist ball fitter from a distance. So I want to know, A, if you have more details, I'd love to hear them. But is this the future of golf ball fittings? Tony, why don't you start? Basically, they're calling it a virtual fitting, and it's designed to replicate the first step of their ball fitting process, which was just effectively an interview, right? Tell me about your game. What do you play? What golf ball do you play? How is it performing for you? What would you like to see it do better? You know, where do you need help? That that sort of thing. And then based on that information, they can and, and again, right? They'll, they'll I assume they'll ask about preferences. Do you want a softball? Do you want bright colors? You know, performance versus preference, that sort of thing. And then they'll make a ball recommendation. And you know, we we talked about Bridgestone having a, a virtual fitting tool as well, where they actually look at a swing video and make a recommendation. So, you know, short answer to your question, I think I think yeah, this is a part of the future. I don't think anybody would say that there is a a substitute for an in-person fitting or to the next level, actually taking golf balls onto the course and, and trying them and make sure that they fit your game and they're what you're looking for. But, you know, as we see kind of the world changing a little bit and what we've learned from COVID, the ability to do things remotely, it, it just makes sense that this becomes part of the part of the equation in this this new world we're living in where, hey, you can you can now have this mechanism to reach golfers who may not, for whatever reason, have the desire or the ability to come in for a, a full in-person fit, fitting. So I think I think it makes perfect sense, and I think you're going to see everybody kind of move in that direction. Chris, what do you think? Is this the future of golf ball fittings? Do we even need to interact with a human to get it <laughs> to, to know what golf ball we should play anymore? Yes, we want to get rid of all human interaction, uh, if if reasonable and possible. No, I, you know, I think there's always going to be that that part of it, right? I mean, um, maybe potentially down the road we'll be able to gather enough information where we can really quantify everything that we need to, um, and then come up with a ball recommendation. I think that's certainly possible. The other piece of it is, you know. Let's say you did a, an in-person fitting out at Titleist or something like that with a professional ball fitter, and you compared that fitting to one that you did online or did like a telemedicine kind of, you know, like a telefitting or a virtual fitting. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get two different answers, but the processes are going to be a little bit different. And so, you know, could we get there? Yeah, we, we certainly can get there. I think the, the reason that this is going to stick around, at least for now, is it really accomplishes two things, right, for, for golfers. One, it's potentially more efficient or quite a bit more efficient. And so things that tend to increase efficiency tend to stick around or easily adopted by others. It's a pretty low cost thing on the on the producer side. So it increases efficiency for the consumer. It's low cost on the producer side. And really what it does is it starts to eliminate bad choices. So right, sometimes fitting is not just making a good choice, but it's eliminating what some of the poor choices might be. And so because it does those three things, it's definitely going to be a part of it moving forward. Um, is it going to overtake it? And mm, we're not quite there yet. Harry, what do you think? I think it is the future purely because, I mean, we were seeing it with this time in COVID. We're seeing a lot of companies realize that they don't need to be in offices, for example, and everyone's working from home. I think this is just another step where they can probably get as close to a, a, an in-person fitting as possible. Um, the interesting part about it, I'll be interested to see 
are they going to fit from the, the green to the tee or the tee to the green? Um, normally, if it's tireless, I think it will be green to tee. But when it comes to professionals, I know that they're not going to want to do the online fitting. They're going to want to really dial it in because the difference between this ball and that, that ball could be you know, a couple of strokes for these guys. So I know that they probably won't trust an online fitting tool. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest hurdles is does consumer actually trust the online fitting service that either Tylist or Bridgestone or any of these companies um, will produce in the future? Because I guarantee, I mean, Bridgestone has done it, Tylist is going to do it. Every other company is going to end up jumping on this bandwagon. So it's trust, in my opinion. Tony, would you trust it? As a starting point, again, the recommendation there, I can speak firsthand with Titleist. I, I don't know about the others, but I assume it's a similar model where they don't say, you know, this is what we fit you for. This is the right ball for you, period. Go play it. End of discussion. And, and you know, don't call us, right? We're, we're all set here. Whereas really what it is, is like, hey, we've looked at everything. Here's a recommendation. Go try this ball and maybe try this other one alongside of it as the our second choice, if you will, and see... See which one delivers what you want it to on the golf course because that that becomes the ultimate proving ground, right? So, you know, I, I don't I don't think we're ever going to get to that point where it's it's you know here's the answer, absolute final, no discussion. It, it's always going to be a recommendation. Go see if it works for you, and you can do that with a golf ball in a way that you can't do with a golf club because the the price, the barrier to entry is significantly lower. So. You can pick up a, a sleeve of Pro V ones, even if you're buying three at a time for under fifteen bucks, and a, you know, same with a Pro V one X. So you can take both of those for minimal cost and go try it. Whereas, you know, if you're stuck between drivers, in most cases, you don't have the opportunity to say, "All right, I'm going to go take this TaylorMade Sim and this Callaway Maverick. I'm going to take them both out on the. I'm going to buy them both, take them out on the course, and figure out which one works a little better." So. Yeah, club fitting versus ball fitting. The methodology, I think, is a little bit different. And it, I think ultimately it puts more on you to make the decision on the ball side. Chris, do you think that they can see what they need to in order to accurately fit you virtually, which lends right into would you trust it? You know, that's a great question. Yes and no. I guess the the, the yes part of that is <clears throat> depends on what their criteria is, right? Like, so use Bridgestone as an example where really their first point of differentiation is swing speed. So can they see, you know, like through their VFIT system, can they see and assess and, and try to put you into a category based on swing speed? Yeah, they can. It's probably going to be one of two golf balls based on what you present uh, in terms of swing speed. Then from there, it's uh, it's a little bit more straightforward conversation of spin characteristics of the ball within that swing speed range. Flip over to a company like Titleist or, or or Snell that would say, hey, we really want to fit you. You know, let's start at the green, work our way back. We're going to talk green side stuff, 100 yards and in stuff. Um, you know, how does it perform out of bunkers, out of the rough, uh, partial shots around the green, etc. I don't know how they would see that um, other than to try and get you to explain how you try to play shots, what you're trying to do, what you're looking for. And again, then you have the player perception issue, which is... You know, I may think that I spin the ball a lot, but maybe I actually don't. Um, and it actually reminds me 
of last year at the PGA show, we were when we were down in Orlando and Harry and I were were hitting some chips and pitches around the green and and there's a particular ball. He's like, Yeah, I just can't get this to check. I can't get it to spin the way that I want it to. And I could see that firsthand because I was standing there with him. I don't know that uh, that there's a great way to translate that in just kind of a verbal interview apart from trusting what the person's saying. All right. Harry, we've reached the fun part of the year where everything coming out of your sector of the company is things like ball retrievers and umbrellas, speakers, that sort of thing. <laughs> so this week you put out your umbrella buyer's guide and I want to know why do we care to have you spend your time testing something like umbrellas? Does it really matter? Yes, bottom line. Um <laughs> I mean, it's like anything, everything matters. Um, so for example, everyone's had an umbrella that folds inside out because of the wind. Um, they realize that it, that that normally happens with one canopy deployment. So when the wind goes inside the umbrella, it has nowhere to go but back out and it enforces it and goes inside out. When it comes to double canopies, there's like a vent system that comes in and it pitches it out and goes out. Now, if those two vent systems are too tight together and there's no real give, then the same thing's going to happen. But there's uh, products like Shed Rain and Gus Busters and Inesis. They have bungee systems that attach the, the top canopy to the bottom canopy on the arm. And then it expands a lot more. So when the air goes in, it gets out as quick as possible. So it's really really um good for high wind so say up to 50 miles an hour i think gust buster is so that is is a big thing the structure of the inside needs to be reinforced so it basically adds the durability the handle again is another thing so if you're on carts and you you put it into your um your little device that you you put your umbrella in if you have a handle that's curved, it's not going to fit in there. So it needs to be straight up and down. If you're walking predominantly, you want one that fits your hand and molds to your hand. So there's a lot. Tony, what about you? Are you worried about the details of your golf umbrella? I think it's 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 nice that Harry's gets to be the technical one and I don't have to dig into the weeds <laughs> on umbrellas, um, which is really good because that's a, that's a quagmire I don't want to be in. But a yeah, simple answer is, yeah, it, it, I think it matters, right? An umbrella is one of those things where you're like, who gives a shit? It's it's just an umbrella. But if you think of it in broader terms, it's a piece of equipment, if you want to call it that loosely, right? That that everybody or almost everybody who plays golf owns, right? So almost everybody has an umbrella and you don't think too much about it until you find yourself on the golf course and your umbrella breaks or you know starts leaking or doesn't provide sufficient coverage for you and your gear or any number of things that that most of us have probably experienced in the rain because you know some of us avoid the rain as much as possible but you know sometimes it, it you just get wet regardless and so yeah all of these little things matter as soon as you realize that what you have is not living up to the standard that maybe you didn't realize you you had when you bought the that particular piece of equipment so yeah i mean you should have a good umbrella whether you think it matters or not Chris, do you have a good umbrella? Have you done your research and read Harry's Buyer's Guides? So that's what I love about it is, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm passionate about umbrella technology <laughs> and research. I, I, uh, It's one of the things where, I, yeah, I'm glad that, uh, that Harry and others uh, do that research. And I think this is maybe three years ago, I had some shop credit. Um, so I got a Gus Buster one. 
Uh, and, and literally all I did was I went to the review, looked said, okay, that one's really good. Boom, click, buy it. And, and that was it. So, um, you know, I agree with Tony it fits in that category of you don't really need one until you need one. And then when you do need one, you're really hoping it's a good one that does all the things that you're hoping that it does. And, and so just knowing that somebody else is taking care of it and say, okay, yep, I don't want to waste, you know, I only have so much mental energy, <laughs> right? in each day. And I don't know that I have a lot of room for, uh, umbrella analysis and detail. So I'm going to stick with, um, you know, kind of what, what Harry looks at and, and spends the time thinking about and looking through and whatever. But it is one of those things where, you know, in, in any golfer, I think would tell you that when you're in the situation where it is raining, you need an umbrella, whatever, how much coverage there is, is it going to blow away in the wind or, you know, flip upside down or whatever it is, all those features ultimately really do matter at that point. Um, yeah, I'm just glad somebody else is spending their time thinking about it. Well, I'm going to ask you to clear some space in your mind just for today and think about umbrella technology because I want to go around. Tony, I know you have an answer to this. You inspired <laughs> this question. But Harry, I'll go to you first since you're the resident expert. Um, if you could design one feature that golf umbrellas don't have or should have, what would it be? I mean, that's a tough one. I mean, uh, you mainly you wanted to it to keep you dry so that's already covered um <laughs> is it so, well some of them don't what actually keep you dry actually to be fair there is others that if if you are a fair weather golfer and you always play in the sun you you're going to want uv protection Hell that's yeah. already in there so i mean how i don't know uh gps monitor that's built into the umbrella i don't know Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let's expand on that. What about a radar so that you know when the rain's going to stop? So it comes out of the handle and it's just this little screen and it's got the radar and the Make the noise, Harry. Past. Make your beep, bump, boop yeah. noise. Beep, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think that would work. Good idea. Just, well, it's an idea. I don't know if it's a good idea, but you're purely <laughs> because you're going to be spending 150 to 200 bucks on an umbrella and no one's ever going to do that because mm. you're going to have a Doppler radar system in your umbrella. Lame. <laughs> so... I don't really know. Um, I think the umbrellas kind of tapped out when it comes to technology and no one's going to give a give two shits if they have a Doppler radar when they can just look at their phone. <laughs> Tony, is umbrella oh, technology <laughs> tapped out? Well, we are not even close to what you can do with umbrella <laughs> technology. The technologies can be simple. But right, like if I said, what is, what is the primary purpose of an umbrella? Keep you dry. Boom, right? Everybody would agree on that. And so... When I look at the umbrellas I've used over time as a as a guy who who uses a push cart and who who understands that we're starting to see a little bit of shift towards the electric trolley that <laughs> that coverage coverage and actual like not just hey the the water isn't hitting me directly but is it covering me is it covering is it keeping my bag dry at the same time it's keeping me dry is it is it keeping everything that I need to access dry and for that to happen, it needs to do a much better job of channeling water away from your equipment versus just kind go. of dripping down. And that's that's where we get into my elaborate gutter system, right? Where you, you sort of have like a retaining wall on the edge of your umbrella that slightly that funnels it towards the middle of the umbrella where it drowns, drains down through the umbrella shaft, through a hole in your umbrella mount and underneath oh. your push cart. That's much more organized than I was thinking the first time you told me about it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 a solid idea. I don't know what it would take to manufacture it, and then you've got to get umbrella covers that are, are designed to but work. But then, does it your... drip right on your feet? Well, the idea is to is to you could kind of run it towards the front of the cart or off to the side, or you know, you know like a gutter, 
like you know your you as your water comes off your gutter you want to drain it away from the house same person my my rebuttal to that is when it's heavy rain not all rain just hits it and just goes like this it yeah. hits it and then splatters around and goes over the umbrella because it's so the force hits it and goes out like a trampoline so it's not it's, it's never not 100%, 100% waterproof no but you want to get you want to get way better than you are today where the water is like just dripping down over all your stuff, man. That's not cool. I just want, you know, the push carts and the electric carts, especially they're getting longer kind of front to back. And I want the coverage that I don't get from the current state of umbrellas. It's a travesty. I, <laughs> I'd like to work with Tony on this. Um, I think we have an opportunity here. We got Tony's drainage system. And then what I would like is a relatively ornate clip system. You can hang extra towels in there. <laughs> and then preferably you have extra clips for snacks. So you can hang <laughs> snacks like, you know, like little chip clips, right? Hold two gloves and a bag of famous Amos. Exactly. That's... You got two gloves. My radar is sounding better by the second. Tell me that's not a brilliant idea. <laughs> I think it's great. All right, we're gonna. We've made you wait until the end of the episode for this, but the first Ball Lab is officially on the website. Tony, how do you feel? A weight off your shoulders? Yeah, I mean, it's it's good to get the first one published. It's it's pretty wild when you think like this started in terms of the equipment procurement piece of it back in November, maybe even sooner. So oh, we're coming up on a year then. Yeah, that I mean, that's yeah. when the conversation started. And then, you know, working through figuring out exactly what we need and how to do it and ordering stuff and then ordering more stuff and tweaking the tooling and taking the measurements. Yeah, it was a long path to get there. And so to, to publish the first report yesterday was, yeah, it was really exciting for me for sure. So can you give us the Reader's Digest version, the main points of what the takeaways were from the first Ball Lab, which was featuring the Callaway Chrome Soft? Yeah, so there's a couple of different metrics we look at. One is consistency, right? Is Are these balls basically the same as we look at weight, um, compression, and diameter? And in those areas, the Chrome Soft was, was average. I think one of those metrics was slightly above average. And that's, I mean, that's what you would expect. I mean, by definition, most things are average. So certainly average, I would look at it and say, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, the one area we did find some issues with when we cut the balls, the biggest issue was layer concentricity. So some thin spots in the cover would be the specific thing we found on on multiple balls. So that that was kind of the ding on the ball. On the upside, uh, we found one core that was off center. Um, everything else was well within you know, acceptable limits for me. So, you know, far from perfect, but certainly improved quality and i think as we continue to look at callaway my expectation my hope is that we're going to see that get continually better so i'm going to stick with you for a second tony we're obviously consumer first at my golf spy and a lot of what consumers are concerned about is the cost and so how much are they paying for a dozen callaway chrome softs versus how much should they probably be paying yeah so what are you paying for You'd think I'd have this number committed to memory, but I don't know exactly what we settled on, like 58 or 59 bucks to get a dozen good. And so we we created this true price metric that, that basically said, well, you know, if you buy 12, but X amount are bad, then you actually have to, to you would have to spend more to get 12 good ones. And so that that's what true price is. The higher that number relative to the MSRP, you know, kind of the, the more uncomfortable you should be with your purchase. Um 
Yeah, and we don't know how that's going to shake out as the uh, market as a whole. As a whole, I don't. I don't think Chrome Soft is going to be great. I can. I can confidently say it's not going to be the worst that we we publish. But we we thought that was kind of a really interesting way to try and quantify the overall quality of a ball in in terms people could understand. So, you know, and again, the the ripple being like you as a consumer, you don't know which ones are bad, and you may never know because. You know, we're, we're, as I've said countless times, the tendency is always going to be to attribute a bad shot or an unexpected result or, or something like that to, to yourself rather than the golf ball. And we know the golf ball can be a contributing factor to that. So that, that's ultimately what we're trying to flush out here with, with Ball Lab is get to the bottom of, hey, who's, who's making a consistently high quality product with, with the fewest or ideally no bad balls in the mix? Chris, what was your reaction to Tony's findings on the Chrome Soft? I love the the entire ball lab concept, philosophy, et cetera, because it is it's it's certainly two things. One, it's something nobody else is doing, nobody else has ever done uh, on this level like this with this level of specificity. And so um, I was just excited to see kind of okay what happens. I mean, it it really is just like our testing and, and exercise in learning and say okay, well let's try this and see what happens. Let's see what we find. And to see some of that finally kind of come to fruition is really, really cool. And, you know, the other piece with kind of the true price metric, um, the other thing that kind of made me think about is it does give consumers a really good idea of the relative cost or relative value of something. And, you know, there's a lot of feedback or people give feedback around kind of the catch 22, which is, hey, I can't go into a store, buy a dozen balls, cut them open and then go, oh, geez, two of these are bad. Now I've just basically wasted a dozen balls. So, well, precisely. That's the point. That's why we do it. I mean, you don't go purchase a car and look at the you know cost of ownership over five years and go and disassemble the engine and go, oh, my gosh, I think this tire was put on, you know, a little bit wonky or, oh, geez, these brake pads are wearing a little bit quickly. You trust the reports, you trust JD Power or, you know, consumer reports or whatever it is to help provide that information because they've done all of that testing for you. Um, And that's exactly the point. We purchase the balls, we buy them different retailers, we go through the processes, we use statistically significant, uh, you know, measurements and sample sizes, and we take care of all that stuff precisely so that the consumer doesn't have to do that. So um, I get that it's a catch-22, but that's also the reason that we do what we do. Harry, any surprises in the Chrome Soft report for you? I wouldn't say surprises. I would uh, just education, not just Chrome Soft, but just the ball industry in, in general. Um, and I think a lot of consumers can learn from just the truth at the end of the day. I mean, all we do is publish the truth and what the percentages are of bad balls compared to good balls is, and that, that it is what it is. When Tony started this last year, it was just eye-opening, and I was just thinking, well, now I have no idea what what my balls are like, and I questioned every single ball that I was playing. So this, but this, this is how it needs to start. And and the interesting thing about this article is is the percentages of what is good and what is bad and what makes a good and bad ball. I want to know, and I know this is going to come, is how this ball performs and compares to this ball. And at the end of the day, what is the industry standard for a bad ball? And I know, I know that's a very broad topic, but I want to know, like, all right, I can expect six balls out of 36, you know, 
balls are going to be off-centered or not um, able to play. So that's what I'm taking from it is, is what is the norm and is 16% high or low when it comes to the Chrome Soft. Um, but I know Tony's going to um, say that throughout the articles when he published every, every week. So I know that will be um, explained. So, Tony, I'll give you one more round here. What is the future of Ball App? We're getting a report a week on a different ball, but there are some other avenues you're going to explore in terms of Ball App as well, right? Yeah, so as you mentioned, we'll have a weekly report, at least weekly for a little while, and, and then we'll kind of see where we are, reassess, and you know, we'll, we'll also look at reader feedback and see what we think we, we need to adapt to and change. But if you kind of look at the roadmap, you know, we know that that people want to see all of this stuff kind of all at once, head to head. And so mm-hmm. you know, we're looking at ways to do that. And I'm being brutally honest, that may be a subscription product at some point where we include more data, more detail. Uh, we want to keep the stuff on the website pretty simple so that you can kind of skim it and grasp it. And then if you want that next level of, of detail comparison, more insight into to the actual numbers for things like consistency, then then we can do that in a, in another way. And then on top of that, I think as we continue to learn, we're going to be able to do more of stuff that is is not specific to a certain ball, but sort of general insight articles where we say, hey, you know, this is this is something we learned and, and something you should think about with golf balls that that doesn't necessarily apply to a specific ball, but but looks across kind of the entire segment and it kind of gives you some hopefully some insights you haven't had in the past. So, you know, a lot of different roads, but certainly kind of a really exciting project for me personally, especially like I haven't taken on something like this till since we first conceived of the original Most Wanted test, which was like, hey, what if we we tested a whole bunch of golf clubs with a whole bunch of people all at once? What would that look like? I mean, that was a major undertaking and, and Ball Lab is a is a pretty significant undertaking as well. I want to add one more thing specific to the ChromeSoft article. So in that article, I mentioned that there there were two different core colors within my sample. Um, We didn't see anything in the the actual consistency measurements to say, hey, you know, light gray is better than dark gray or dark gray is better than light gray. I did hear from Callaway on that point specifically. uh, So I just want to make sure we put this out there. So at, at some point in the ChromeSoft production, they switched the core color intentionally. So light, if you will, is, is the newer. And that was done to effectively timestamp production. Uh, because as, uh, as the guy that texted me from Callaway pointed out, it's it's not like you can kind of just put a, a label or a chip in, in one of these things that, that tells you when it was made. So it becomes a tracking mechanism for them. Callaway's not the only one that, that has done that. We've certainly, like, we've, we've cut different tricks on balls open from different periods of time and seen some pronounced color variation. So, well, I don't want to say that everybody does it all the time. It's, it's not an unusual thing. And certainly, you know, I would only be concerned about it if I saw significant variance in the measurements between the two colors, and I didn't see that. So there you go. All right. Well, we want everybody to go check out that article on the website. Um, and we want to hear, of course, keep commenting and tell us what you think about it. But we've officially reached our new favorite part of No Putts Given. Harry, what's our English phrase of the week? It's <laughs> the Harry heritage. <coughs> Everywhere I go is chock a block. I'm sorry, what? Everywhere Every- I go is chock a block. Everywhere I go is chock a block. <laughs> Your faces are brilliant. Love this segment. Love it. <laughs> Chocobot. Any guesses? Any guesses? It's, it's odd that this is English and yet 
Yeah, I have no idea. Everywhere, everywhere I go, I it's all all the same. I don't. I know. chalk a block. Uh, a. Let's give him another hint. Um, oh, this on Monday it's Labor Day, so the beach is going to be chalk a block. Oh, super like packed and crowded kind of. Yeah, yeah it's chalk a block. Every everything is is full of overweight Americans. Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> is that it? That's the answer. Uh, uh, sure, yeah. Okay. But yeah, chocolate blocks basically you run into such math. a cruel way to describe my tub spy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. wow. Speaking of which, I got some questions coming out next week. All right. All right, good. Yep. Well, this show was chocolate block with good information. So Oh. Oh wait, I do have a, I have a hot seat. Oh. That's right. Since we're on since we're on British things. Good. Um we were talking about this pre-show, and so we decided to make it the hot seat. But Harry says it's just the Open, whereas in the States, we might say the British Open. So, hot seat. Tony, is it the Open or the British Open? I don't care. No, I, <laughs> I, I tend to say the Open Championship because that's what that's you know what guys <laughs> like, like Harry tell me. But honestly, I don't care. And I think you know, within the golf world, it's people like to nitpick on little things, like using golf as a verb. Um, where just golfing. Like, don't, we have, don't yes, I'm, there will be people golfing at the British Open. <laughs> oh, you yeah. don't like that's not a good thing. Well, some well some people get irate about it. It's one of those things. I'm like, eh, you know, let's maybe as long as people are talking about golf in some capacity, that's probably fine. So whether you play golf or you're golfing, isn't it the same? Oh dear, Miranda, you're gonna get some hate messaging now. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm speaking sorry. about our conversation on the Revo line of clubs when when you were younger. <laughs> Did you soccer? No, I played soccer. Did you mm. baseball? Yeah, but we're not. But we're adding an ing to the end. I guess. But I guess I wasn't soccering. <laughs> yes. Did you go? Did you? Did you go soccering on the weekends? <laughs> but you no. go. But you go bowling. You don't. Yeah, you do go bowling. You don't play bowling. Yeah, that's that's fair. But when you had the big blonde afro, were you yep. footballing? Did you go footballing? Every day. You go fishing. You go fishing, right? You don't ah, go. Miranda making the strong argument. It's it's give or take. It's yeah. We are so away from the open yes, challenge. But, but that's my point. If if golfing is fine, then then the British Open should be fine too, because all of it should be fine as long as the point is understood. I I think it's very one of those things where golfers will find anything to be offended by or to to try to find something that's. Are they that's, golfers or those who golf? Are they golferings? Hmm. Yes. <laughs> I don't, I, you know, it, it, it's it's one of those things. I, I've always called. I mean, I call it the British Open, and I think it's just uh, you rat bastard. I know, but it's not <laughs> intentional. It's just a, a matter of habit. I don't think about it like, ooh, I'm saying it this way, and it's going to really cheese somebody off or whatever, and they're going to want to go eat some spotted dick or something, and like <laughs> I don't know so, where it's going to go, and. I don't understand why it's that big of a deal. And maybe that's just sheer ignorance. But I also find that, you know, a lot of times people in the, in the golf space, yep, they'll find anything to be offended uh, offended by or try to find a, a, a hill to die on. And I'm just not sure the British Open versus the Open Championship is, is a hill worth dying on. Harry, are you dying on the hill? I mean, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, England is very traditional and we like to get everything that we have a tradition and to keep it maintained um i mean america is you know kind of young when it comes to countries so you guys got a lot young enough to whoop your ass (laughs) (laughs) wait wait ride a cup ride a cup i think he's talking 1776 (laughs) yeah i know i'm talking about ride a cup if we're golfing 
the idea about the open is because you're allowed um, professionals and the top amateurs to join as one. Um, so it's an open for all golfers instead of just predominantly professionals. That's why it's called the Open Championship. And that was in the uh, 146th Championship, I think ESPN uh, called it, which is unusual because a lot of Americans will say the British Open. And that might Still be... Still open. Still open. But it might be because you guys, half of you don't have a passport and you don't go out of America, so you don't know any other places in the world apart oh, from we're, America. We're not actually allowed to leave right now. So. That's true. <laughs> That'll do it for episode number 56 of No Puts Given. Guys, thanks for being here, and we out. Mm-hmm. No Puts Given is powered by My Golf Spy, the most extensive reviews in golf. Before you buy, My Golf Spy. Nine million readers do it every year. Check us out. <laughs>